there anything that either of you'd like to add? Anything you can think of? Would it be okay if we played that back again? It's a good idea. Just in case we forgot something. We just think it's possible you may have perceived what you saw and what you heard somewhat differently, that's all. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another installment of the IMMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and sometimes we keep watching. When we finish a show, there's more of it, there's new seasons, there's more episodes, and we decide to go back in, sometimes against our own suggestion, and see more of it. <laughs> and sometimes this is actually voluntary on Ian's part, Yeah, <laughs> sometimes not. And I think we have a mixed bag this We've time. We've got a mixed bag this time. We've got more Space 1999, we've got more Thin Man movies, and we've got more Project UFO. Right. That is a, that is a wild combo, I just, might, I, I just want to preface, <laughs> because this inexorably leads to the idea of Nick and Nora Charles either in space or solving a mystery that implies aliens as its first culprit. And I am intrigued by either of these hybrids, but neither of them are what we get to properly discuss. Now, there are a few different reasons why we might uh, keep watching a show and watch enough of it that we think it's worth doing a, a We Kept Watching special about it. Sometimes it's just because we really, really enjoy the show and we watch more of it. And because we've watched more of it, we have more to say. And that's Columbo is the example of that. We watched a few seasons of Columbo, recorded a podcast, and then we watched every other Columbo that had ever been made. Yes, we have watched every Columbo. And that's not necessarily a good thing when you get down towards the end, uh, some of those ones that were made for uh, for ABC in the 80s. It's, it's when you had Columbo going over to people's computers. We're getting off track, but yeah. still. When I say 80s, they were making those into the 2000s. But they yeah, that's, that's one example. It's still Columbo. Some Columbo is better than no Columbo. And then there are shows that I think we need to watch more of because they change so dramatically. The, the 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 difference between a season one and season two of certain shows is night and day. The it's no longer the same program, and that can be that can be different because if you review them as one whole, you can't really split apart into our normal categories at the end. And that's true to some extent. I think of Project UFO. There are cast changes that we'll talk about, and other things that really make. Uh, season two very distinct from season one, and, and it, it only had two seasons. Space 1999, as we will talk about, is is another thing entirely, and we'll we'll get into that. That is a whole different animal. And then there's the Thin Man movies, which as kind of a combination. They do change dramatically, and but but the main reason why we kept watching is they're just they're still fun. Oh yeah, a little bit more of a Columbo scenario. So. We will be talking about each one of these series. I'm rambling here. I don't know how to lead from the intro into Project UFO. Well, we could always describe what we're about to do and then come back after we've talked about the three things and see from there. All right. There we go. Okay. Well, Captain Ryan, look, before you start, now I don't know what this is all about, but I hope you don't think that the Air Force is going to brainwash us into thinking we didn't see what we saw. It almost feels like we'd be talking about a different show, but the later episodes we watched of Project UFO 
they have a weird relation to the to those first ones we watched. They've got this. Well, they switch out one of the main characters, and that really changes the style. And I said how much I loved the structure then, how much I loved that, but it almost gets detrimentally formulaic in a weird way after that first season, I'm feeling. Yeah, I'm glad we kept watching Project UFO because it is an example of a series that changes, not in the way that the Avengers changed, but some some specific changes from a casting change and kind of their their default script outline change it really feels to me like something that got a bunch of network notes between the first and second seasons like we'll give you a second season but oh yeah th- this feels like corporate mandate all the way right and and i don't know if any any writer writing staff changed but it it might have but as you say, the casting, the big difference in the casting, we lost uh, Major Gatlin, oh. and we gained uh, a new leader for this uh, foreign technology investigation team, who's a uh, a captain. It definitely changes the the pattern when you've got, because before we had kind of the the much more serious and the much more lighthearted, but they'd switch off as to who was believing what was going on and or uh, not believing but who who had some thought that it might be real and there was a little bit of a switch off of the yes we're of different ranks and we respect that but we will we're friends there was kind of and not in a not in a buddy way but in a like i i respect you enough to listen to your opinion on this situation right it was always very clear who was in charge it was always major gatlin and he was more of the in command by the book still very professional very personable and then there was the more folksy more i don't i don't want to say he was more credulous but he was a little more open to the stories people told in the way that people tell stories uh, Sergeant Fitz, and you're in that second season. Major Gatlin is gone, and a Captain Ryan is in his place, still working with Fitz. But Gatlin and Fitz had this just very good working relationship in that way. But it was clear whose role was what. Ryan, even though he's in command, he is working more as an equal with Sergeant Fitz. It seems to me. Working as an equal on the job front, yes, but all of their interactions in what would be, like in the show, there was the scenes on the airplane where we get the two of them approaching things very different, but then when they're both on the topic of like correcting that old lady who insists she's seeing a UFO out there, they're on this back and forth that you can work as a team wavelength. It's almost flipped in season two, where... They're on this, like, when they're working, they're they're a little bit more close to each other in terms of level, but when they're off, there is a very different dynamic. There's something almost, oh, look at him, he's so folksy, and the other guy doesn't get what's going on with him. It, it feels forced, it feels flat. Yeah. It feels a little bit like friends in the wrong way. <laughs> It's it's weird, but it just changes the dynamic. There is a comparison I never, ever would have expected. <laughs> how Project UFO Season 2 is like Friends. The one, 
The one where Rachel sees a UFO. (laughs) Now, you're right. There is that other um, sitcom connection and and that that your mom, Mrs. Darling Wife, pointed out. We were watching this, and she was watching this with us when we saw uh, one of the episodes of season two. And she was just amazed and delighted. There was Edward Winter was now in the cast. that He plays uh, Captain Ryan. And he is uh, probably best known for playing Colonel Flagg in M.A.S.H., who was a kind of crazy, kind of paranoid CIA type in Korea. I have not watched a lot of M.A.S.H., but I had this... I, and we're getting off track here, but I've seen just enough to know that he is the type of character you can use to make sure a plot would keep moving no matter what. Yes. And that's very fun. And so seeing him playing a a, a character who is stiff in the way Ryan is in this is mm-hmm. odd. To me, I, maybe I just don't know what he does, his stuff enough, but it's a... Knowing him from so few things, it had that effect. Right. And that might have emphasized this strange off-tone nature. Another thing that the changes in season two is the way that the stories, they seem to bring in more character relationships other than the ones that our, our, our lead characters are either participating in or observing firsthand. There's more you know, behind the scenes of the UFO sighting, for example, in ways that there are more scenes that could have been from any 70s crime drama and more plot developments that could have been from any 70s crime drama yeah you could take a lot some of these stories in season two remove the ufos and still have 75 percent of a script you could use in a number of other tv shows in some ways the the first season had that i almost want to call an a b and sometimes c story structure where they were researching like two events at once unless it was one really big one right and then this second season, it's one each time, really. It's, it's mostly focused on one event each episode. In the first season, it seemed to me that whenever their A story had a clear and convincing rational explanation so that we end the story knowing this wasn't a flying saucer from another planet, as opposed to it being left ambiguous, whenever the main story was like that, they had some kind of a B story, which let you keep a little bit of that wonder. So, for example, there was the, the episode in season one where there was the, the sighting over the military academy and the weird angel hair stuff that fell to the ground, and the kids were amazed, and it turned out it was experimental radar chaff. But then, in that same episode, they had... The, ca- the 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 guy camping in the woods meeting Robbie the robot and yeah, the, shooting the, arrows at him the the hiker in the the impossible metal arrow and that lets them end the the episode on the note of whatever that was it like left such and such a marks and it was stronger than carbon steel here it's like they just have their a story and even when it has a rational explanation part, usually because it's based on an actual project blue book case that had a rational explanation they add some little, or was it, tag at the very end. Yeah, it's like, it's like someone from editorial mandate management said, you're burning through potential stories too fast. Stretch these ones out. Oh, that may be. And 
or Jack Webb just didn't want to spend as much time going through Project Blue Book files as he had been. Yeah, so we wind up with this stretched out and therefore fillered with the type of writing that teams might know from other shows they're doing, making it feel more generic. But it's that it's it's adding some rice to something to a to a dish to add some filler, kind of stretch it out for the for the meal. Oh, that's an interesting idea. I wonder if any of these did start out as a spec script from some other TV show, and then they added the UFO element to make it a Project UFO script. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got notes from the first one we watched. It was the first episode of uh, of season two, and this was one that involved a, a combination sighting of an unidentified flying object and an unidentified submerged object, something under the water with weird lights and such. I've got a note here. Aliens versus sharks. Meanwhile, in Columbo. Oh, you're thinking Columbo. I'm thinking Murder, She Wrote. I'm just imagining that, like, Scooby-Doo movie mystery where they've got a guest star. But instead of the Scooby gang, it's Jessica Fletcher holding up a flashlight. And it's the two of our our guys from Project Blue Book standing there in the little... And the little lamplight, because they're showing up for an episode. And that story would have been perfectly at home in either of those shows, or or others, because so much of it was about the people at this Oceanographic Research Institute, and the rivalries and professional jealousies and all of this. And it turns out that a big part of the plot revolves around somebody tampering with somebody else's uh, scuba tanks. And, you know, that could have been part of a murder or attempted murder plot. In this case, it kind of was, but that was secondary to the fact that it impacted how believable this person's eyewitness testimony about the UFO sighting was if she was breathing pure oxygen instead of compressed air. Might have been a little loopy. There were parts of that that I'm getting mixed up in my head with the movie Lords of the Deep. That they showed on MST3K, <laughs> just because yes. it is it is that same level of you know cramped underwater experience about the people instead of the UFOs and aliens and mystery. Yeah, these these are two that are similar. Not that it would have to be two that similar. These are definitely Lords of the Deep and this episode of Project UFO. You could imagine some Italian film studio buying the rights and splicing them together into a new feature. Oh, absolutely. So. But that kind of tells you also the the style we're working with. This is a little bit more overdramatic when we've got people. <laughs> yes. It's more about these overdramatic people. And the the mystery is the mystery of the UFO aspect and the solving of that and the rhythm and pacing that we had in the first season is slowed down in order to pull it out through all of this. Right. And a little undercut because the keep the wonder out there has to be included in that first one, which means it's always going to cut the knees out of some of the great explanations they will give. If there's never... If if you have two stories, you can choose the one that it doesn't hurt as much to make it uncertain. But if you have to add uncertainty to every story you put in, some of them are going to be hurt by it. Uh, I thought that was especially true of the, the second season two episode that we watched, which I picked because, not just because it was the next in, in line, but because I was familiar with the UFO case that it was based on, the Lubbock Lights. This one, it was, instead of Lubbock, Texas, it was um, Davidson, uh, California. 
that they decided this took place at. And it was this town where people are seeing these V-shaped lights. And throughout that episode, there was so much of the secondary characters arguing about university tenure that I was kept thinking, get to, get back to the UFOs, come on. You, the, you As a series, you hooked me with the little kid talking to the weird alien spacesuit people. Oh, goodness. And now I get 40 minutes of people arguing about tenure. Give me uh, the aliens. If you, were to, if you were to give us the aliens arguing about tenure, it would at least be more interesting. <laughs> That's it. They're alien sociologists. Oh, yeah. I need this data for my dissertation. I don't care how many farmers I confuse. <laughs> so I would say that if you like season one of Project UFO, it's definitely worth taking a look at season two, but be aware of how different it's going to be. Yeah. Some people might like it more. Some people might say, oh, great, we finally have some human drama going on here, not just people bouncing back and forth, collecting evidence and making rulings. But for me, that's not why I watch Project UFO. I want more aliens and stuff. Yeah, I, I almost want to... I'd rather watch season two if someone is out, is out there who would cut down so that it is paced a little bit more like season one episodes. Right. I want that alien story and I'm okay with enough of the, hu- of what's going on with the people for what's needed in the story. But can you, you speed this up for me a little. And to the point you were making about the way that the pattern in season two kind of undermines their own storylines, the explanation in C- in the second episode we watched these weird V shaped lights was reflections of a new streetlight system off of migratory birds, which were especially oily that time of year or something like that. <laughs> but it was, and it was kind of definitively determined when a piece of the UFO hit a high tension line and fell to the ground. And yeah, it was a duck or whatever kind of bird it was. So they have this explanation. They even have this great human storyline where the person who was trying to fake evidence and promote the idea that it really was a UFO because it was better for his research project at the university, and then he came clean. All of this stuff around this explanation they came up with. And then in literally the last minutes of the episode, while our investigators are flying home to write Patterson, there happens to be a semi-retired Navy admiral on the same plane and starts asking them about the latest experimental aircraft because he saw this really weird thing when he was camping out in the desert. And he winds up describing the same UFO that somebody else actually drew a picture of. And he was nowhere near the place where the lights would have been reflecting off of ducks. So, yeah, they had that, that, or was it? At the very end, which is kind of fun. Probably I got a little thrill from that when I was watching it when these were brand new. But it does sort of take the wind out of what we just saw them work on for 40 minutes. I used to be in charge of the the 27th Plot Contrivance Division, but I kind of miss that job nowadays. (laughs) (laughs) He, He really does come out of absolutely nowhere just to shoot down the bird concept still a fun show still wish we had something i wish there was some way to pull what i like to have season one more as season two but 
Yeah, I, I would have liked more of season one style Project UFO, but season two style Project UFO is still worth watching if you're into this kind of thing, which, by the way, I am. So, yeah, I'll watch it. Exactly. I teach you the priceless art of molecular transformation and see how you use it. Foolish games. Oh, Father, you only taught me because you knew I'd eventually master the art myself. <laughs> True. You are clever, Maya. But one day we must find a better outlet for your gifts. So, Space 1999, Season 2. What? Or, or sometimes called Space 1999, Year 2. Because it's sort of mostly the second year of their space odyssey. Doctor's report. Our LSD supplies have unfortunately fallen into the supply of fresh drinking water. We will all have to deal as a crew, but we're going to make it on this moon base. I don't have any other explanation for what we just witnessed. <laughs> now, we didn't watch all of, of season two. But we watched enough, I think, to give you a good idea as to what season two had in store. Right off the bat, the intro's very different. Yes, no more funk explosion. No more funk explosion. It's not a bad score. I think the, uh, the second uh, season did have a pretty good score, including that opening theme. Yeah. But it's not the funk explosion we got in the first season. It's a little bit more uh, drifting moon jazz than it is funk explosion, and it doesn't even do that as well. But uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to just immediately go to the heart of the confusion for me. The lady, we zoom in on the eyeball, and then she's a tiger, what? (laughs) So you have hit on one of the key differences between season uh, uh, one and season two, is that in season two we get another... Principal cast member. We get Catherine Schell as Maya. Maya. The alien who has the the power of molecular manipulation, which makes her a shapeshifter. It's jump cutting. It's jump cutting and a few animals. Yeah, it's whatever they could get that week, I suppose, or whatever costume they had. But it, I mean, we talked about the original series having a lot of, you know, we ran into another psychic, and now we've decided to mount one permanently into the crew. And I don't know how to feel about that, because having her in the team's repertoire removes some of the, like, some of kind of the the pop, you know, you know, space will f- conquer the unknown kind of feeling of it because it's it becomes a lot of the oh no the heavy thing fell turn into the one thing you know that can lift a heavy thing Maya does so yeah. then we no. can get back into the no, drama not that not that the gorilla because we have the gr- we have the space gorilla suit I don't care what else you can do you got to turn into the space gorilla <laughs> space gorilla o'clock <laughs> and. On the on the other hand, we we gain a cast member and a, a primary character in Maya, played by Catherine Shell. We also lose Doctor Bergman, played by Barry Morse. No explanation as to where he went, what happened to him, but he's no longer there. He's just gone, and that loses a lot from the show, I think, because they try to replace. Because we, I, I rechecked how we were describing the show before, and we were discussing it as you know a litmus test where you have a 
a scenario that poses a question and you put different personality types into it and see how each of them respond. But they've tried to replace his voice in this with a a voice that oscillates between chipper in a way that doesn't make sense all the time or I don't know your customs. And neither of them are actually as interesting of a viewpoint sometimes. And removing that one character and adding this new character really does sum up what they seem to be trying to do. And that is, we described the first season as very heady and trippy and kind of hippie-ish even. And it kind of was. For 70s TV, this was... It it had enough goofy action and, and questionable plots and, and you know, TV-quality horror, but it also asked some kind of interesting and deep questions about the nature of reality and perception and all this kind of thing. And Barry Morse's character, who was like the generic scientist, was one of the ways that they would at least articulate that. Now, the show is almost all action. There's very little of that kind of heady philosophy in the second season. And it's more of a two-fisted action sci-fi show. Absolutely. (sighs) There's part of the way they they almost try to depict Maya's character at times that reminds me of Starfire in the animated Teen Titans show, but not done properly. And that seems like a weird connection, but there's something of the, like, I'm the optimist here, and I'm smarter than you give me credit for, but I'm going to be the most out of my depth the most times. And doing that wrong is so detrimental. So to trade out your, your, the calm-minded scientist for a not-as-great-written version of that other set, oof. Right. I think that's also an example of how they were a little bit inconsistent with how they characterized Maya. Sometimes she was the, this is all new to me and you're all strange because I'm alien. Sometimes she was fitting right in. Sometimes she understood the Alphans humor just perfectly and other times she was confused. It was a little bit too much plot convenience as to what she knew and how she thought. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Shell did a very good job with the role. I just think it was not written very consistently. Yeah, this one definitely had some writing issues in that sense. And the actors do great with what they're given, but... And and again, these are some pretty good actors overall, oh, yeah. and including some of the guest stars. Like in the first episode of the second season, um, Maya's father is played by Brian Blessed. Oh, goodness. Who does you know, a great kind of scenery-chewing job as the, uh, is he evil or is he not alien? He gets to be... He gets to be boisterously more technologically advanced <laughs> in a Brian blessed way. Yep. I'm going to say this. In giving us a bit more of the the Bang Pow action series that they kind of try to be here, and in doing so oddly getting rid of some of the people against the unknown actual intrigue that that genre can give you, they also really unfortunately... Uh, go from the will they won't they between the captain and the doctor into a they are and we'd like to stop seeing it (laughs) it becomes so weird and overt that it becomes awkward it sure does especially when you throw in jokes played by the shapeshifter yeah that gets just 
Yeah. Like, let's not. not. (laughs) And they still love psychics in this series, even in in season two. In season one, a lot of plots that had to do with ESP and psychic powers and mind-controlling aliens and things, and they like that in uh, in season two as well but even there it's used as a a tool to drive a very straightforward two-dimensional action plot when they do have some kind of a, a psychic phenomenon episode it's not really exploring the nature of perception and, and the other things that season one ventured into Mm-hmm. It, it's psychics or a gas cloud and every once in a while you'll get a psychic gas cloud <laughs> The most interesting thing we saw was the episode where they run into a bunch of frozen pods in space and proceed to get duped pretty handily by, of course, the psychics frozen in the pods. The most interesting part there was the fact that it turns out that not only are the people in the pods, spoilers, by the way, the people in the pods are evil, but they actually deal with the concept of cryo-freezing leading to time differential, which was almost the most science-y thing I ever saw them doing. You could make a much better story with that premise written better and not having an entire like side thing with the shapeshifter thing going on. You were right that that episode, The Exiles, was was pretty good, mm-hmm. one of the better second season episodes. And yet, our space explorers discover a large group of people who ha- are in cryosuspension, and it turns out that their leader, who's the first person unfrozen, is actually, and spoilers, their leader was exiled because of an attempted coup, and he is a, a radical political leader who was trying to overthrow his society by force. And that's why he was put into cryo sleep and exiled. Oh, dang it. That sounds familiar. There's some other TV show that I dimly recall that has a very well-known episode that's kind of like that plot. Oh. Dang. Yeah, you're right, <laughs> Sorry actually. Sorry to disillusion you, but it's, it, there are ways in which Space 1999, especially in its second season, has that problem of, you know, what is original is not good and what is good is not original. It's very cold in space. <laughs> Okay, yeah. So, yep. Dang it. Okay, walked right into that one. <laughs> so, we did watch a good sampling of season uh, of season two. There, I don't remember season two well enough to have really picked and chosen what I thought were the very best episodes. I, I picked ones that I vaguely remembered and, mm-hmm. and I knew were interesting, in addition to watching, of course, the first episode of the season where we meet... Maya. Oh, I will give season two a little credit for a moment. Oh, sure. It seems to take a little bit more reference to the idea that they are attempting to deal with a thing that's not supposed to travel, traveling. Because we see a lot of rooms getting differently rearranged in ways that seem like they crammed a bunch of extra stuff into the room. Now, a lot of this is their budget went up and they added more flashy lights, but a lot of the computer things are like, bunched differently and some of the rooms seem smaller and it makes me feel like if we have had 12 explosions 
that means that everyone needs to double up a few things. And I could kind of give it that credit because of the way it changed some of its framing. And I liked that. There was not enough paint peeling to go along with it, but a little bit of the extra budget clutter actually helped that mentality. Yeah, this was well before Alien really popularized the the gritty, dirty, this is a machine that's been overused for decades kind of sci-fi. But yeah, there was a bit of that. On the other hand, they had computer upgrades and redecorating and, and lots of things that I really don't think they would have been able to accomplish on this moon base wandering through the stars. But some of that, as you say, it's a question of budget. We missed the episode where they went past a psychic planet with a bunch of people in polos who sold them new TVs and such. <laughs> they just stopped by Space Best Buy and Space Ikea, and uh, they're all set. Oh, goodness. Uh, see, the difference between how season one would have dealt with a uh, a story about a planet who is all vying for commissions versus the way <laughs> season two would deal with it is huge. Did season two change your opinions of how we wanted to grade this? Because you said not to binge the first series, but that you could kind of go for revival. Yeah, and I still feel that way. I still would say you know, I could go with I don't want to see a, um, I, I wouldn't recommend binging. I could see a revival again, like the next generation, you set this in 2040 or something and, and see what's happened to their, you know, what's going on with their descendants. You were talking about a reboot last time. I was, I wanted a mini series reboot and I don't think that. I don't think season two has anything really to contribute. I don't say binging season two is worth it. The best I can think of is that now in this reboot, someone on the moon base has a cat named Maya. That's the best I can think. That's the only <laughs> reference you give season two at all. And you keep going with the just take season one scrub to the skeleton and build again kind of concept. Okay, I, I can go <laughs> along with that where it's, it's kind of what they did in the Battlestar Galactica reboot. There were some things that they didn't replicate, but they had a name or something that was a little nod to something from the original. Oh, yeah. The the BSG method is great for some of the series from this time, not just for Battlestar, because it is a acknowledgement of the core concept and then the utility that sci-fi can have. And I'm getting deeper on the concept of sci-fi in general, but if sci-fi is a lens by which you can analyze parts of your society by extrapolating pieces out so that they become more visible, then there is potential within this framework here, and that lens can be used better. Yeah, and that's one thing about a series like this, which is really the two seasons are very different shows. You can decide, okay, I want a revival, but only of this series represented by season one, not this other series represented by season two, or vice versa. And so I think you do have some of that freedom here. If they go with the revival, are you going to have, like, a portion of the population with transmutation abilities because they're descendants from Maya? <laughs> I like that idea. That's interesting. So, so, suddenly it sounds more and more anime. Oh, goodness, it really is. <laughs> You've got to find a way for them to loop back and run back into Earth. <laughs> I think I'm rebuilding Gundam. I think so. We, we might have to stop here. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, one of the frustrating things about the changes to the extent I don't like the changes in season two is that they were made in order to appeal to Americans. 
And this is something I, I learned thanks to some some things that uh, Mrs. Darling Wife found. Season one was fairly successful, and it was a little more popular in the U.S. than ITV expected. So they said, oh, we've got to capitalize on the American market. Let's make it even more like something Americans like. So we have to have an alien. We have to have more action. We have to tone down the trippiness. All the things that made season one so distinctive just get washed out, supposedly because people over here are going to like it better. That's knowing that is a little bit of insult to injury. We knew you like it. So we changed the formula. I've watched that happen with so many products over time and it makes no sense. Right. It's and especially with TV, it's like when the TV big network decided that it wanted to take over the series Forever Night or when they tried to move the terrific FX morning show from 20 years ago, uh, Breakfast Time, onto, from, from FX onto Fox Broadcast. Meanwhile, changing it, changing the cast, changing everything that made it cool. And that's kind of what happened here. I'm, I'm just wondering where they got their research as to what Americans like from action movies and what, like, late shows they've got an animal segment give give someone animal powers is that where we're going i don't get it i'm i'm checking the dates because the series ran in total from uh 1975 to the fall of 1977 so i don't think this was influenced that much by star wars because star wars had only come out a few uh months before probably like during the airing of the the second season, so yeah, I thought for a minute, oh, maybe Star Wars—that's what every sci-fi TV thing wanted to be at that point, but maybe not. Between the fact that their attempt at appealing didn't do very well, and the fact that Star Wars came in and completely upended the table of of what uh, public uh, expectation was, both you know what the corporate thought the public wanted and what the public showed they wanted. I think that's what killed a season three. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 this feels like it could have tried to last longer. (laughs) And in some ways I am grateful. It was told to, told to ease down. So it sounds like we're in agreement that only if you are the, the most absolute completist, should you binge season two. Or if you really have like a sci-fi tabletop game and you need a strange premise to throw your players into because you don't have anything for this day, maybe pull up an episode. But it doesn't. Maybe you don't have a lot more from there. Oh, now that's a cool idea. I like the idea. If I, if I were running um, a science fiction uh, tabletop RPG, I would throw in a storyline where the moon wanders through. Oh, that would be cool. <laughs> Not as the setting where the PCs come from, but as something to deal with. So suddenly this wandering populated moon. Oh, oh by. goodness. I know I know what game system to use for season 1 versus season 2. Oh, we're way we're talking we're talking a difference between using mothership RPG uh with its stress mechanics and its, you know, psychology based you know are you a a a teamster a scientist kind of differential you're using that for season one and then you're going full like pulp action with uh savage worlds rules for the second where you can literally give someone psionic powers as a playing card you deal them at the beginning of a combat round and there's a lot more like just 
if if the talks break down you start throwing punches but they both can fit it's just very different rpg systems all right there we have our answer do not watch season two of space 1999 do not make a a revival or a reboot of season two of space 1999 but absolutely Play a Savage, Savage Worlds com- campaign based on it. <laughs> are we adding roll for initiative to revive, <laughs> reboot, or rest in peace? I think so. We are for this, and that's that's the answer. Roll for initiative. I like this. Ah, oh, get lost, you offbeat rinky-dink. You're nowhere. Well, something else that we kept watching was the Thin Man movie series. We went through all of them. We, we'd gotten a little into the second and third movies our previous time, but now we've got all six movies watched and ready to talk right and we watched all six of them over the course of a week Mm -hmm. so you know that's one of the reasons why we kept watching was we had them and we just really were enjoying them they are easier to get into when you've already got the style from one of them in some ways the first one is so good at introducing the characters and such that it's easier to roll into the next story especially when they the first three are rather temporally connected it goes from they finish up the event in one to it's fresh in everyone's minds by the second and both of those are well known but recent uh news enough to gain interest by the third and then the time frames start getting longer in part because production times got longer there was a war in between some films it actually affected the release schedule on some of them but that kind of stretches it out. But the the first one is so good at character setup that I almost feel it's necessary to get into watching the other ones in a way that in a way that not a lot of movies until the the Marvel Cinematic Universe really wanted you to have sat through another movie or two before you could come to this one. If you just dropped someone in front of the fifth Thin Man movie, I'm not sure they would get as much out of it. I think you're right, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, as you say, they they trusted the audience to know who these people were and what their distinctive characters were. But also, the characters became more cartoonish, more caricature as the series went on, I think. Oh, yeah. And that that's a serious problem for me because the characters were so... They were, of course, impossibly rich, impossibly witty, impossibly good-looking. But they were still something real and solidified about them in the first movie. And again, that's partly because it's a story by Dashiell Hammett. And as you go through the series, especially the, the last half of the series, the, um, the fourth, fifth, and sixth movies, they're much more cartoony. And it loses something for me because of that. I can appreciate that the post-war Thin Man movies were attempting to be a little bit lighter because they were trying to be a little bit easier to an audience that was wanting something more of a distraction in that sense. I can give it that credit, but I don't feel like it did as good service to the characters in that there were other sh- other things that could have done that. I want a Thin Man movie to have that little bit of spice to it. It's not as if things were great when the original ones came out. These were B-movies, really, the first ones. B-movies released during the Depression. These were movies that were escapism, and mm-hmm. letting people vicariously live the life of, of gorgeous and wealthy society people slash detectives. 
Yeah. So it's it's a it's a shift in the concept of what you want out of your escapism in that sense, I guess. But you are absolutely right that the timing is important. The fourth movie, Shadow of the Thin Man, was released in 1941, just before the U.S. enters uh, World War II. I believe it hit uh, theaters like a few weeks before we entered the war. So like you know, late late fall of uh, of forty one. Yeah. So yeah. So that and there were of course a lot of tensions already even before the U.S. entered the war. So that is a very different time than nineteen thirty four when the first movie came out. Mm-hmm. And then after that nineteen forty one release, there wasn't another one made until nineteen forty five, till the war was over. And that was par- largely because Myrna Loy, A, had gotten married, but B, was dedicating herself to war-related work mm-hmm. and, and was not, did not have the time or, or attention to spend on a Thin Man movie. And as, as William Powell has described in interviews, some people floated the idea of having someone else play Nora Charles, and nobody wanted anything to do with casting someone else as Nora Charles because this was Myrna Loy's role. And he didn't want to work with any—William Powell didn't want to work with anybody else. They were delighted when she came back for another movie in, in 45. Uh, that was uh, The Thin Man Goes Home. And it was great to see this other movie. And I can imagine what it was like to see one of these you know, four years after the previous one. But it wasn't the same. No. The movie, it was so different. The characters become more exaggerated. Nick becomes much more incompetent in anything other than detecting. Yeah, he's also, more of the, a... And, and, and they play, instead of playing up how much drinking, they play up how much he's of trying to not drink. And that, I understand, one of the reasons for that was that they thought that given wartime liquor rationing, people wouldn't necessarily want to see somebody, you know, drinking every chance they got the way uh, the way Nick Charles did. Mm-hmm. But it it all did it took the 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 weight out of the characters. The the stories tended to have a little bit less weight as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Some of them were still very clever mysteries, very interesting to watch as mysteries. They just didn't have the substance of the first movie and even the first few sequels. I think were more weighty and yeah. more substantive than the last couple. Absolutely. And Nora's character becomes, I mean, this is in part because they want to give her more moments, but the moments they give her make her seem unhinged at times. She goes off in a way that I wasn't expecting. Now, if they did anything modern with this, I'd want a little bit of that energy that they gave her in these later movies to be incorporated earlier. If they'd introduced her as a person who can get this ramped up as part of her character from point A, I could deal with it. But having that develop over time feels awkward in a way that it just being there wouldn't. And they also made her a little bit less sharp. Yeah. A little bit more gullible, a little more likely to have a harebrained idea and follow through on it. And that disappointed me because one of the great things about the early movies was that Nick and Nora were perfectly matched because they were both so smart and both so observant and made each other smarter by working together. Mm -hmm. They were two different types of observant. And that meant that when one had a fault or didn't look at something, the other one caught it. And now Nick will catch all of it 
if he's in the mode to, and Nora will be getting them from place to place for him to notice things. Covering the wrong parts of each other's uh, cooperation in that sense. And they also downplay somewhat the fact that Nora is incredibly wealthy, and none of them, neither of them, have to work a day in their lives if they don't want to. They almost suggest that Nick is making a living as a detective, which maybe he is by this point. Maybe he has started practice as a detective again. But I almost got the impression that that's how they earn their living, and that's not the dynamic that worked so well at the beginning. They also do add a character who they don't use much, and who doesn't add much, which is Nick Jr. I, I he, he, get, he gets some fun moments, and one of the movies, it's interesting because the fact that he's there is a, a plot point and his interest in stuff, and he becomes a... a a risk that they have that ha- because the, the bad guy goes after the family kind of thing. But I felt like they gave him scenes that just didn't play. So I, I, it was uneven. I'll give you that. Sometimes it worked great. I think that later on when he's no longer an infant and Nick Charles Jr. is played by Dean Stockwell. How cool is that? Hmm. Don't they ship him off to boarding school so he's not in a movie? Yeah, there's the, when he's not needed, like when the thin man goes home, he's off. Uh, Nick Jr. is off at boarding school. When he's useful as a potential kidnap victim, then yeah, he's around. So he, it, how, how how devoted they are, how connected they are to the little one is uh, is something that varies from movie to movie. Absolutely. But I I think that in some of the movies, Nick Jr. is used well, and in some. Either not at all or not as well. I got weird, spritle vibes off of him in some of those. (laughs) Never expected to pull Speed Racer in this, but they kind of play him off as a kid that would hide in the folks' trunk to go see the murder. You're right. (laughs) I could see that happening. He could probably then help solve it, is what I'm figuring. He probably could. But then again, so did Spritle sometimes. He He often was more useful than you would expect. I think we're going to have to do a Speed Racer episode at some point. Oh, boy. I, I kind of embraced, I, I embraced <laughs> myself for that, so this is me priming that pump. So when it comes to, uh, to the Thin Man sequels, yeah, if we're being really exacting and we're comparing them to the brilliant original movie, there are ways in which they are wanting. But apart from that, or that notwithstanding, they are still a lot of fun to watch. There's oh, yeah. a reason we kept going and watched every single one of them within a, a few days. Oh, yeah. This goes, going in order down the six movies, it's a yes, 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 well, yeah, sure. It's not, a, it's not as energetic as those first three. The first three are a wonderful set. I'd say watching them is great. If you like that, keep going. But it's not going it, it, to, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a slowly fading out instead of a, a hard stop or a crescendo. And if you like 40s trad jazz, the last movie song of The Thin Man, it's set in the jazz music world, and that may add an extra star for some people. That might add an extra star. That one is also interesting in its own right, because that that's the one with the boat. Yep. And that, that one has some interestingly cool like dynamic sets, and they're starting to get more intriguing with their cameras, because there was a couple like pan- panning and following shots that they didn't have in the other ones. That's that true. One's, that one's cinematography is more elaborate 
because they're starting to experiment with that. And it has some interesting options that could have kept going, but it's more of a, those things you saw in other movies, you can see an early example here. Right. And the the technology of movie making does change and, and these movies are informed by that. But, and, you know, talking about the times when these were made, that also brings up a key difference in the first movie that I don't know if we mentioned when we talked about it last time. Oh, the first Thin Man movie is considered a pre-code movie. Oh. Technically, the Hayes Code was in place when it was made, but the Hayes Code wasn't really enforced until, like, middle of uh, 1934, a few months after The Thin Man was released. That means that the original Thin Man movie got away. It wasn't... It wasn't the most racy movie of the early 30s, by any means, but it got away with some entendre and some racy jokes and a few things they didn't even try in the second movie and forward because they were more concerned with the uh, the code censors. So, and I think that just having that little bit of spice in the first movie is another thing that gives it that hard edge that is missing from the later ones. You know what? That might be part of what I'm feeling, where it's like, you need to see the first movie to understand Nick and Nora better. Because the fact that they're trading some of these non-code-approved, you know, quips back and forth is part of what gives you the idea of their connection in a way that the other ones are not allowed to imply. That's that's right. That's one of the fun things about it. They're they're. Everybody in the world recognizes them as kind of a perfect couple. And one of the reasons why they are a perfect couple is that they are very much in love and all that that implies. And they had to kind of leave out the all that that implies in some of the later movies. So that actually does re- cause me to relate a an addition to our suggestion from the end of our uh, review of the first movie. Oh, yeah? We'd suggested that a that a uh, a reboot could be interesting with a, mo- a semi modern setting, doing things like that. And I'm realizing that not only is the win of doing it now with with you know legalization of things, allowing for a comparison to the end of prohibition and things like that, but the rise of streaming services and the difference in allowed content between streaming and cable TV means that you could have a little bit more of that commentary and that quip and such in that context in a way that mirrors the Hayes Code in a weird way. I hadn't (laughs) expected to compare these two, but you can get away with a little bit more of a a proper Nick and Nora in the first movie style on streaming. Whether whether you're making this, whether you would be making this reboot as a broadcast... A network broadcast TV show, or a feature film, or a Netflix series. You're right; that would change the the tone, and you could almost map each one of those to a different period in the original six movies. Absolutely. So I think this is is yet another reason why we would like Netflix to make the uh, the modern day. Reboot? Uh, modern day, um, yeah, reboot, reboot. Yeah, I, I could go with Netflix. I could kind of see uh, Hulu, I'm not sure, but I could definitely see one of the streaming services doing something with it if they want to pick up the Thin Man license. <laughs> or HBO. HBO's been doing some interesting things. They've got a, 
a Perry Mason series in which Perry Mason is suddenly a private eye. I haven't watched any of it yet. I'm sure I will. If that's successful, maybe they'll be looking for more uh, material. Uh, HBO Thin Man, I can go for this. Well, thanks for joining us for this We Kept Watching special. Hope you've uh, enjoyed revisiting these uh, TV series and movies the way we did. And part of what all this is about is that if we're talking about binging or not binging shows, that's because there's always something more to talk about. If you keep if you keep watching something, that means that there's more to think. Every new episode is more ideas. So if you've had other thoughts of shows you've watched of, of what we've seen, if there's other shows that you think, wow, they missed a big section, they should go back. Let us know, because this sort of discussion is... It never ends when the episode ends. There's always more to see or talk about on any one part of things. That's right. And let us know if you've got a favorite series that is practically a different series from one season to the next. And you can uh, let us know any of these in a few different ways. You can find the podcast on Twitter at IMMPcast. You can find us online at IMMproject.com. And that's where you can find all of our back episodes, contact page where you can get in touch with us. Also, a link to our Discord. We'd love to hear from you there. And a link to our Patreon and our store and other ways that you can support. And where can people reach you, Ian? I can be found on Twitter as Item Crafting, on YouTube as Item Crafting, and on Twitch as Item Crafting Live. And you can reach me at the website MatthewFPorter.com. You can reach me on Twitter at ByMatthewPorter. You can also find me on Twitch at by Matthew Porter, uh, especially if you like mellow games and you're up uh, well after midnight mountain time You on a Friday or Saturday morning, you might find me streaming something. So thanks again for joining us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the 20th century. And in the meantime, go find something new to keep watching. <laughs>